This is The Hidden Wire Podcast, episode 726. My interview with Albert Laszlo Barabashi. Performance is about you, but success is about us. That is a quote from Albert Laszlo Barabashi. Guys, how are you? Welcome to another interview on The Hidden Wire Podcast. I hope you're very well indeed. Man, I have a fantastic episode to bring to you today. I talk with Albert Laszlo about his book, The Formula. It is the universal laws of success. It's a different conversation about success, not just typical what you'd expect, run-of-the-mill conversation on success. He really starts the conversation off by what defines success and giving us not the definition of success because he believes there is not one definition and I think it's more to do with the collective definition of success than anything and up to the individual also to define what determines that success. But he breaks down success into two parts, performance and success. Performance is about us. It's about what we do, how we measure and define success in our own lives, whereas success is what is observed by the collective. It's a really fascinating conversation. We talk about some of the laws of how we can all improve success and some of the data that he's found in the research that he's found that helps back his theories on success up. Man, it's a real cool conversation, guys. I hope you enjoy it. Jump on to thehiddenwire.com. Let me know what you think. You can leave your comments in the comments fields. You can connect with me and interact with me on Facebook at The Hidden Why. And reach out to Laszlo, Albert Laszlo as well. He's got a website there. I'll stick that link in the show notes. He's got a really cool book here and a couple of others as well that you might be interested in. Man, all around a great conversation, a bit shorter than normal, but still a lot of value. Enjoy, guys, and thanks for tuning in. Cheers. G'day, Albert, and welcome to the Hidden White Podcast. How are you today? Very good, thank you. Thanks good. for having me. Oh, mate, it's a pleasure to have you. You've written a few books that are of interest. I came across your recent one online, uh, which is The Formula, The Universal Laws of Success, so the science behind why people succeed and fail. Um, so it's certainly struck a chord with me, and I just wanted to get you on the show and have a bit of talk about your work and, and what you have found in both science and your research around what defies, defines success and what creates success. So um, tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you got into this field of work. Sure. I am a network scientist, uh, and I work here in Boston at Northeastern at Harvard. And, uh, and you know, for years we've been looking at big data, and particularly how networks determine uh, and shape our life, from the biological networks within our cells, how genes connect to each other, to social networks, to professional networks, communication networks, and so on. Mm-hmm. And so a few a years ago, scientist is looking at all those networks, is it? All those networks, right, okay. and try to extract value and information and knowledge from that. For example, what I do on my Harvard side is that we use genetic networks to try to design new drugs as well as to diagnose existing diseases and so on. So, so this was kind of the background in which uh, a few years ago, actually eight, nine years ago, we started to think about it. How would the network affect your ability to achieve something? Or in other terms, how would the network affect your success, the, uh, the networks that you are embedded in, whether they're social, professional, other networks? And, mm-hmm. and uh, what we soon realized as we went after that question is that this is not only a network question, that success raises a bunch of questions that you have to answer first before you start thinking networks. And it was that journey 
from which we actually ended up distilling many papers, but also the formula, the book that you encountered. Okay. It sounds like, um, you know, network science then covers a very broad range of networks that we perhaps often like social networks. I sort of can relate to and understand, but the other networks we, well, I certainly don't often think of like our biological networks and how that may affect success and performance. Well, I mean, the tool set is applicable to all of those. But when we started to think about success, we realized we need to develop a new tool set. And we did. Uh, because the first question really for us was, what is success? Mm. And, and, uh, and really, you know, in, in our language, the way we use per, uh, the word success we often interchangeably use it with performance, kind of hidden in, the, the, in there the assumption that if you have performance, you will have success or you need performance to have success. So, but we realized soon that in our approach, we have to distinguish the two things in a very clear way. So the way I think about it is performance is what you do. That is, you know, like how shows, what kind of shows you run, what paintings you paint, what bills you bring together, or what scientific papers you write as a scientist. Hmm. But success is about what the community observes from that performance, how does it acknowledge it, and eventually how does it reward you for that. Is it only a community that observes that, or what about how the individual observes that then? Well, I mean, the, the, the community is made of individuals, right? So, like, you're doing something, and then how does the community observe and reward you for that? Let me be more specific. You know, well, the way we think about it is that your performance is about you, but your success is about us, is about those of us who actually can observe and reward you for the performance. And the reason why distinction is very important is because Performance, as we talk about, we're going to unveil that it's very hard to measure in many different areas. And we're looking for one data point of like how really your performance looks like. But success, because it's a community measure, it's Mm. easily measurable because there are multiple data points about it. Many people reflect on your performance if you are successful, right? So therefore, you know, like I have lots of data points on that. So suddenly, that distinction between performance and success, the performance is about the individual and success is about the community around that individual, Mm. allowed us to use the tools of big data and network science to formalize uh, the, uh, the concept of success and to really understand the mechanisms that drive it. Right. <laughs> sounds um sounds very structured anyway. What what is your definition of success then? Like what is that how would you define it? Yeah, so so I mean there there's not a single definition of success because it depends on what you do what is the success measure. If you are a scientist hmm. One measure of success is what is the impact of the papers you write, right? Where do you publish and how many people will actually cite it? If you're a businessman, that could be money, could be companies built. If you're an artist, could be what institutions accept your art, what museums exhibit you, and eventually what's the cost if you want to sell your work, right? right. So in each in music could be actually how many people listen to you, right? How many albums you sell and so on. So I don't want to actually kind of force myself into a single definition. Mm-hmm. The only thing that we're system doing is to say always the success measure is a collective one is what the community does because how many citations you get how many album sales you have how many people listen to you these are all community measures that the community rewards you for what you have done hmm. now so of if course, we didn't have we go, if we didn't have community would success yes, not would, exist 
Right, like so. This is the the deep dilemma, right? If uh, if a tree falls down in the forest and no one is there to witness it, did it make a thud? Did it make a noise? Hmm. How yeah. will you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> so so I mean, uh, but and, surely and on the individual people, level, if you don't form part of a group or community, and you had I don't know certain goals to pursue. And you had certain measurable points of your performance that defined in your own interpretation success. Couldn't an individual say, well, look, I feel successful in what I'm doing, even though there's no community to observe that success? Absolutely. And I'm very glad you asked. This is actually chapter one of the formula where I discuss is that there are lots of personal measures of success, hmm. whether I want to be happy, you know, I have, a, I want to have certain achievements, uh, you know, I want to happy about my children's achievement and things like that that are essential to our very existence. Yeah. But that's not the way we're defining success. We're defining success in the terms of what the community actually sees from your performance. Now, these personal satisfaction measures are very, very important for us. Hmm. But in our equation, they contribute to the performance, right? Because you better be happy. You better feel your, your, uh, good about yourself. The better, better kind of reach your goals in order to provide that performance, that will give you communal success, right? right? So, yes, these are essential. This is not what this book is about, right? So, so these, are su- these are essential to really pushing my own performance further. So if I can For, say, okay, look, I feel successful in what I'm doing, that gives yes. me a sense of accomplishment, achievement right. or whatever, That's which right. helps my so, performance so, enhance a bit more, okay? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So like, bring on the next interview because I felt good about the previous one, right? <laughs> because yeah. I, I felt like the energy to do that. So anyway, so, so that's the way we approach it. And of course, the big question we are asking is to what degree performance relate to success? Because at the end, we're learning. We, we, this is why we go to school. This is why we have coaches, because we're often and over told that the more the, you need performance of success and the better performance, the better success you get. And indeed, this is kind of the first law of the book, is that performance generates success if performance is measurable. So if you are a runner, you have a one-dimensional performance measure, your speed, right? And it uniquely determines how well you are as a runner, how successful you are as a runner. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that most of us work in areas where there is no chronometer to measure your, your performance, and either the performance is not one-dimensional or there's simply no objective way of measuring. And if you are a doctor, if you are a scientist, if you are a radio host and all of these different areas, it's very, very difficult to actually say who is the best and how do I compare to people. And this is not to say that it's, not, not, uh, that it's hard to distinguish a bad from a good one. That one, you don't have to be very well trained to see what's the difference between a good painting and a bad painting and so on, or a good wine and a bad wine. The challenge becomes when you are actually asked to distinguish two individuals of performances that are all on the good side. So, for example, in the formula, I talk about it, that when it comes to distinguishing top performance, even the professionals fail. Uh, one of my favorite study, uh, stories actually is uh, is about uh, uh, the Queen Elizabeth competition that since 1937 has been running. And if you win that in piano or violin, for example, you're going to be a star in the music, mm-hmm. in that particular 
and concerts hall will open up for you and you I've will never want even heard about that competition there you go <laughs> yes the belgium based one but i bet that anybody that you actually care about the classical music in piano or violin who yeah. really matter they have gone through that competition yeah and 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 so it's a very professionally put together competition ap people start then there are 12 finalists and the 12 finalists are judged every day. Two of them perform a brand new play. No one has heard that before mm. so that they don't have advantage by knowing that particular piece. And they have the same amount of time to prepare, same jury. The jury has to give grades on the spot. They cannot talk to each other to convince each other. The best run competition you can ever have to find the best violinist. Yeah. Yet, yet interestingly, since 1937, no one ever won that competition who competed the first day of the competition. And the choice is random what day you're going to compete. You're randomly assigned. And even if you are in a late, you have to be in day four, five, or six, actually, to ever win the competition. Second, hmm. yes. Isn't that surprising? That's <laughs> right? weird. Yeah. Uh, even though the talent is random because they are randomly assigned the spots. If you are assigned the second spot on the same day as two people competed the same day, you are typically get a grade that is about two points higher than the one actually who's assigned this first spot. So overall, when you analyze the data, it turns out that, you know, just when you are playing is totally determines your ranking. Now, we have a very interesting situation. We have the top experts in the world evaluating these finalists, and they're unable to decide who is the best one. Because they're all fabulous at what they do, right? Hmm. And, and once they are unable to see that, they start actually assigning them grades based on things that had nothing to do with the performance, like whom did they remember better, who performed later, right. and when they got, learn to actually appreciate the piece. The reason you've never been in day one is because the committee is not able to know how you're playing because for them as well, the play is new. The song is new, what they are performing. Hmm. And they're learning the first two days, the piece itself. And only from day three, they will start paying attention of how you are performing that. So, and, so you and, don't want to be in those first few days then? <laughs> no, I mean, so this is what we call immediacy bias. And the immediacy bias is huge. If you want to become a, a judge in, the, in Spain, you, uh, you can take an exam from Monday to Friday, Monday 40% pass, Friday 70% pass. Yeah. That's a huge difference, yeah. <laughs> right? Mm. And, 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 you know, actually it's really funny because when I, when I put this book out uh, and uh, several publishers were bidding for it, we interviewed every editor, why do they want this book? And one of the editors said, because I finally understood something that always puzzled me. He said, for a decade now, every year I accept interns in the publishing house and I don't know why, or I could never understood why, but always the best person for the job was the very last to enter. Hmm. And 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 then then he finally understood through the, through the formula that it was not the case. What happened is that he became the best to ask the questions by the last person, yeah. and he remembered much better the last person. So once you learn how to ask the question, once you know what you need, you are asking the right questions, and therefore you get the right answers. For that reason, I always recommend my students when they when they come back happily that they got an interview for their dream job, is that to, cool? That means that you have the performance to get the job. Well, will you have the success to get it? Well, for that, find out when the decision is being made, and make any excuse possible to come as close as possible, as late as possible in the process. Because you are, if you are among the first, you will never get let that job. 
Wow. So this is one example that comes out from the fact that performance is very difficult to measure in areas where you, you are comparing high-performance individuals. When you have to compare, not even the experts, I explained the hmm. formula, are able to distinguish good wines from each other. They cannot distinguish in a systematic manner musicians from each other. Pianists, uh, you, you mentioned there's lots of studies in the formula to show that we always fail to distinguish the good from good. Now, if we are unable to distinguish the good from good, who is going to be the winner? Who will be successful? When you have 10 or 12 violinists all starting together yeah. and only one can win, you know, what are the mechanisms through which one not only gets selected but achieves a huge success and the other 11 will be totally forgotten? Hmm. That's really the bulk of the formula, what we're talking about. What are the mechanisms that, that play when you are not able to see this performance from performance? Okay. So in that scenario where performance is hard to measure and even the experts find it hard to measure because everyone's as good as the next, mm -hmm. it sounds like the evaluator uh, starts to create measurements of their own, which are, yeah, like you said, totally unrelated to the performance. Is that right? That's exactly right. Okay. And then all different mechanisms play. And often the evaluator is not aware of that. And, and that typically results in biases and it results in discrimination. So, you know, for many, many decades, musicians were convinced, classical musicians, that women cannot play classical music. The American orchestra till, till the 1960s were only men. And, and it wasn't until here in Boston, a few steps from where I'm speaking to you from, at the Boston Symphony, they instituted the paravan so that they can actually not see whether it's men or women playing, that they finally hired the first woman in an American orchestra. Oh, yeah. She's still actually alive here. And, and it turns out that was not enough. enough. I, once they started systematically to build the paravan up, still many more men were actually accepted for, uh, uh, rather than women, which said to many of them, you see, we were right. Men are better at it. Until someone figured out that it's not enough to have a paravan, you also need a carpet. Hmm. And once they put the carpet in, there was no difference in the men and women's success rate in getting the job. Yeah, well. Hmm. So these these mechanisms that you're talking about, so when, when it's hard to measure the performance, these mechanisms are what you describe as the laws? Correct, yes. So so like we can go down further and say, all right then how does this kind of snowballing success emerge? And, and that would be kind of uh, the, the, the third law, is how previous success times fitness generates future success. What does that mean, right? Mm. Well, what we actually have seen, and this was actually something that my lab has done 20 years for this research, is that success generates success. That the more you have, the more you will eventually get into the future. Sure. And... and um, but the question often comes, could it be possible that that's simply because the one who gets this extra success is actually more talented or better at it, really? And it's not success generating success, but there's a hidden variable of talent or knowledge, and, and that's really driving the story. So is that what and you I, define as sort of fitness, so previous success yeah. and fitness? But is it possible that always the successful has a higher fitness? And the answer is no. And that's what I discuss a lot in the formula, that there is very clear experimental evidence that, that 
success by itself can generate success without the difference in fitnesses. And one of my favorite hmm. stories in that is the research that Arnold Van Nish has done uh, in, the, in uh, the case of Wikipedia, where he picked the 200 most active Wikipedia editors and, and grouped them randomly into two different groups. So these were all very good at what they do. Yeah. Very committed to Wikipedia, but they were randomly chosen to be group A or group B. Yeah. And then he took group A and gave them an award, a so-called Wikipedia Barnstar Award, saying you are a great editor. And to group B, he didn't give any award. And then he said, let's see what happens to you uh, like uh, three months later. Yeah. And three months later, the group who never got an award as a group got three more awards because they were good at what they do. So that naturally they got more awards. But the group who got the award from him got 12 more. Yeah, right. So 12 more individuals were chosen for future awards by others. And so what's happening here? He actually, by giving them an award, he destined them for success. Because, and, and it's a pure success lead they to put success them on a pedestal, basically. He put them on the pedestal and decreased the risk for others to provide them awards, right? Because if you have a very, uh, like an important award to give out, and you have a totally unknown and a well-awarded individual, what would you choose, right? And if you don't want to have a hiccup in the situation, you probably say, well, other people have decided that A is much is already very good, so I'm not running the risk by giving him or her another award. Hmm. While if I choose B, I'm running a risk of picking someone that may not be so good at it, right? Right. So, yeah, makes sense. But it's a beautiful example to show that how it's the same performance, success generates success. Yeah. Now, that being said, what's the role of quality? What's the role of talent? And that's what we call fitness. So fitness still matters in that, uh, in that equation because higher fitness individuals acquire success faster than the lower fitness. They all do, but it's, it's a faster process. So therefore, the future success is equals really fitness times previous success. And we kind of introduced this fitness again many years ago when we're trying to explain how is it possible that the website that kind of comes late on a certain object can actually come and overcome the earlier ones. If you think about the World Wide Web, when Google came around, mm. there were other search engines like Yahoo and Inktomi, probably never heard of Inktomi, and yet within a few years, Google not only overcame them, but it became the biggest hub of the web. Yeah. And yet a few years later, Facebook came from nowhere and overcame Google as being the biggest hub of the web. So what's the mechanism by which a latecomer can overcome the very established market leader? And that's what the fitness is. And the fitness parameter really says how much more attractive you are, the services, you as an individual, whatever you produce to the group of individuals than the other one. And, and therefore, if you have a higher fitness, you will grow faster. So like the, the rich get richer phenomena or the success drives success will happen at a higher rate. So yes, talent, fitness, knowledge, quality do matter because they accelerate the success gets uh, okay. uh, success drive success phenomena, mm -hmm. and they together eventually determine who is that we see listen tonight on the radio. It's interesting. So in fitness, we're talking the elements of fitness could be um, health, quality, talent, etc. That's right, and and of course for us, fitness is something that you could see by simply asking people to listen to a bunch of music and select what they like, right? 
hmm. and and or or read a number of novels and pick the one they like. Really, so objectively, without knowing what other people's opinion is, what do you think about that? Would you find it absorbing? If you pick up a, a, the formula. Can you put it down or you would say, ah, you know, I'm not interested in reading after for the first 10 pages. Yeah. And of course, if you get the formula, you will not be able to put it down once you get started. But, <laughs> uh, but I'm saying that's a fitness parameter. That's about the object itself. Yeah. And, and, and it's independent of this success drive success phenomena, but it drives it. And I can see how that works with, you know, in business, um, as far as referrals go, you know, we know that referrals are often the best business because someone actually puts you up on that pedestal, even though you might be um, equal to the next person that they're selecting. Correct. But you now you're being referred to a client and the client looks at your performance, your projects and says, now, you know, that's not that really doesn't work for me. That's a performance piece, right? That's the fitness piece. So, so, so the success drive success is the referral mechanism by which you arrive to me. But then I go and evaluating your portfolio and says, no, I want to go with someone else. Okay. Okay. So they're working together. Hmm. What are some practical takeouts from the book that maybe you could share as far as how we can use the research and the science that you've found? to help mm-hmm. um, us out there in whatever we're doing um, with sure. our performance and success? Oh, um, there are many, actually, and we discussed a few of them, right? One of them, we discussed the fact that that because uh, interviewers are unable to really say good, uh, distinguish good people from around, then you need to kind of exploit that fact if you want to get a job, for example, by playing the immediacy game of coming late. Yeah. Uh, uh, but there are other aspects that come out from the book as well. For example, in chapter 10, <clears throat> well, actually, from the same argument actually comes out is that if you got an interview and you don't get a job, you could perceive that as a failure. Hmm. I actually perceive that as good news in the sense that the fact that you got an interview, it indicates that you have the performance to get that job. Now, you may have failed it for many reasons, mm. but it means that you should apply to other places as well because the process is stochastic, because you need to be aware that the person who interviews you cannot really distinguish the people who's interviewing. So you have to try your luck several times. Yeah. The very fact that you, are inter- that you are invited to the interview indicates that you have what it takes to, to get the thing going, and that's what you should take good news. And don't take it personally that you have not actually got the job. There are other jobs out there that you are just as well qualified. But then there are other aspects as well. For example, one of my favorite chapter in the book is really chapter 10 that talks about when will that big breakthrough happen in your life. Yeah. And there's actually quite a bit of research in the so-called genius literature that put a very bad picture for people like me, which effectively say that that you know, creativity and brick breakthroughs are all associated with young individuals. Yeah. And, and there's lots of research in science to say that many of the big breakthroughs happened when the particular scientists were in the 20s, maybe 30s. Yeah. And this has gone as far as Einstein once claimed that if you pass 30 and you haven't made your big discovery, you will never do so. Yeah. So I'm just past 50. So I'm really, I was really curious about, should I really stop actually doing research? Because I have no chance of over whatever I achieved, I already achieved by now. I have no chance to overcome my previous achievements. Right. So, so we looked into this data, not only in the case of the geniuses, but we actually looked at all scientists that ever lived and we disambiguated their career 
asking when did they do their biggest discovery. Yeah. And it is true, actually, for ordinary scientists as well, is that they do so kind of like 10, 15 years after they start their career. And the chances of making a big discovery, say, 30 years in the career, decrease very, very fast. Yeah. But what we also realized, that that is not because they stop being creative, but that is because they stop being productive. Hmm. That is that, that the, it is productivity that drops later in your life, that is your attempts to try and not the creativity. And when we put the mathematical toddlers together, it, it, it indicated very convincingly that really every single project that you do in your life, independent of your age, has exactly the same chance of being your big, big, big breakthrough of your career. But what happens is that most people try very, very heavily when they're young. Young scientists write lots of research papers. They try lots of ideas out. Young painters paint lots of painters, paintings. The young composers try actually have lots of energy and they put lots of pieces out. And therefore, it appears as if youth and creativity are connected. Hmm. They're not. Okay. So, so, so the and way that would make sense. That would make sense as you age, if your productivity decreases, because you know, you know, when you start something, you're really gun ho, and then you slow down um, because you come a bit weary. I mean, you know, there are lots of reasons you would slow down. You yeah. have family responsibilities, health issues, priorities. You change. have administrative roles that you didn't have before, right? Hmm. You get well known in your community, and that comes with other responsibilities. So you are not able to do what you became well known for any longer, and therefore there's a drop of productivity. That's clearly the case. So. So one way to think about it is that really breakthroughs are like winning the lottery, that at every single lottery ticket has the same chance of getting the jackpot. Yeah. And, and as long as you continue buying tickets, you maintain the chance of winning the jackpot. And, and therefore, individuals who continue to work late in their life and continue trying, they have the same chance of having breakthroughs late in their life. So, for example, in the book, I do discuss the case of John Flan, who was a chemist at Yale University, who at uh, 65 was forcefully retired by Yale. And, and he was very disappointed by that decision. He had to close his lab. So he moved to another university, the, uh, the uh, Virginia Commonwealth University. And it was there where he actually published a paper that eventually led his Nobel, to his Nobel Prize in chemistry. Hmm. And, and, and whether you look at science or whether you look at business, there's lots of evidence of late starters, of people who really achieved that big success late in their life. McDonald's founder was in his 50s and so on. And actually, people recently looked at the age distribution of the founders of the big companies in Silicon Valley. Where, which, and Silicon Valley is really the place that totally propagates that myth that you have to be on to be successful. Yet, when you look at who are the founders of this big unicorns, the age distribution is anywhere from 25 to 65. Hmm. You have everything in there uniformly. And, and of course, what happens is that, yes, uh, the young people are good news. So, therefore, we write lots of papers about lots of news articles and, uh, and, uh, and pieces about them. And we tend to ignore the steady hand who co-founded with them the company and without whom this would have never become the successful company it became. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. Now, I mean, I, I read a lot about, um, you know, people that have had success later in life. And I also recently, I don't know where I read it, but something um, that sort of indicated that between our 40s and 50s is some of our best years. 
absolutely. I hope so. I actually think it's past fifty, if yeah. you ask me. Yeah, it might be. It might even be up to sixty. I don't know. But um, and maybe that'll change as well. But I understand. You know, if productivity slows down, then naturally uh, everything related to productivity will slow down. So your creativity and your output um, in that manner would also slow down. Well, so that's my point. Creativity doesn't. Productivity does. So, so, so like the chance of that project will be the will be the breakthrough is the same whether you do it in your seventies or during the thirties. Except in your seventies, you only have few a few few projects because you are not trying so hard. But the chance is exactly the same. We have very beautifully showed that mathematically in the case of scientists. But isn't creativity and productivity interwined? Like, if your productivity is less. You still might have a lot of creativity, but if you're not actually producing, then your, your creativity yes. is relative. So, so if you think about the lottery ticket example, right, hmm. uh, is that uh, is is the fact that if you have what it takes to create a breakthrough, you need to buy many lottery tickets to actually get that, yeah. right? So, so productivity is how many times you try. Yeah. Creativity is your probability to have that breakthrough, right? So if your probability is one over 100, you need to do 100 projects to get to that, right? Maybe it will happen the first time around, but maybe it's going to happen in the 150 time, hmm. right? The, only the 150th project of the one of yours that will be a breakthrough. If I look at my own career, in the first 10 years of career, my, of my career, I had written lots of papers with no impact whatsoever. And it was only kind of in year 15 when I started to write papers that really kind of activated the community and got excited the community. And, and, and it's a totally random process of when you get to that particular point. Because success is not about you. It's about the community. What, what does a community resonate with? What do they appreciate in yeah. your work? And for, for about uh, kind of 12 years, I was not able to get to that moment. Yeah, it's pretty um, pretty impressive, and, and we do hear the success stories of people that have you know quite quick success. But most people that I have spoken to over the years, um, you know, it's a 10, 10 year plus journey um, to their success, oh. and that's persistently and consistently doing the same work for that time. But there is an impression that it takes ten to fifteen years because you need to learn the trade. Yeah. What our data indicates that that's not the case, right? No. It's really one of the things that uh, that chapter ten talks about. It is that every person actually brings what we call a Q factor, mm. and the Q factor is your ability to turn a randomly chosen project into a certain uh, a, a product with a certain impact. Whether that's a research paper, you know, like whether you take an idea and turn it into a high or low impact research paper. Or even in the case of the tweets, whether that tweet will resonate with the community or not. Yeah. And what we are finding, but we are able to measure the Q factor for every individual who works in the same domain. And what we're finding is that that Q factor is really unchanged during the life, but it tells you your ability to really do something big. So, so the idea is that a Q factor really multiplies that random choice that you've made with that Q factor, and that will be the impact of the work you do. Which means that even if you have a high Q factor, you could still publish lots of low-impact stuff or do put out lots of low-impact products because you accidentally hit across low random numbers. That is, you haven't picked the right project. But if you have a high Q factor, if you hit the right project, you're able to you know, multiply with a high Q factor and that will have a big impact. So when you look at the, the people we really admire, from Steve Jobs to major scientists, hmm. we see that their career is full of carcasses. That is like very unsuccessful projects, 
that we don't talk about it because it's easy to forget about things that were not successful, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's full. Steve Jobs' career is full with major failures, one after the other. Hmm. But a few times in his life, because he had the high Q factor, he really hit it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and that's the way I think about my life, and that's how actually this kind of the, the our science is indicating is that is that the the, the breakthroughs are a random process. Mm-hmm. It's a product of your ability to turn that that kind of idea or project into something impactful times a random number that is just sorted to you uh, by chance. And if you have a high Q factor, you can't just account for that, that the first project will be successful. You need to take your Q factor or your ability for a ride. You need to try over and over again until you really hit that sweet spot. Right, gotcha. So how can we influence the community? Or is, is that is that possible? Obviously, providing value will obviously be a, a big... <laughs> Influence? The way I approach the way I approach this kind of is is not as much that we want to change or influence the community, hmm. but what are what are the laws that govern your position and your advance within that, right? And the goal of the book is to kind of provide these five laws that you can go ahead and apply for yourself in a way that perhaps will accelerate that process. And what is probably different from this and the many other success books that are out there in the market. That 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 our approach is very data driven. What yeah. do I mean? By that? Yeah. You know, there are fabulous books out there by successful individuals who share their success of secret, uh, success of uh, secrets of success, and there are fabulous books and they're fun to read. Uh, but typically, that's not the path you can follow. That has already followed and that's gone. Hmm. There are other books actually out there who take a hundred successful people and distill some rules of success. And those are also fascinating, but they have one fundamental flaw. You have a selection bias. You're only looking at the successful people. It's a little bit like you're, you're trying to approve a drug without having a placebo in place. Hmm. So, for example, you look at 100 successful people and you say, geez, one pattern that comes out is that they all start at 6 a.m. working. So, yeah. therefore, a secret of success is to start at 6 a.m. Yeah. Well, it happens to be there are 10 million people who start working at 6 a.m. who do not become successful. Yeah. Right? So, so for that reason, what we have done uh, in our research is that not only look at the individuals who are successful in a certain domain, whether it's art or science, but that look at everyone who has tried to actually contribute to that domain. So we, decom- we, we analyze the careers of all scientists from 1900 today, whether they got a Nobel Prize or whether they're totally unknown except for their family as a scientist. Uh, we analyzed the career of all artists in the last 40 years, whether they made it onto MoMA or all they got that actually is some, some local gallery in Australia to exhibit them. Yeah, yeah. And, and by comparing the trajectory of those who succeeded by certain measures with those who didn't, we're able to distill these mechanisms and laws that govern success in, uh, uh, in, in a general career. Right. Data driven, I love it. It um, it makes a lot of sense to be driven in that direction, and it looks like there's a ton of value to be had by um, picking up this book. So I just want to uh, yeah put it out there to the audience listening. If you've loved this conversation and it sounds of interest, um, I'm sure it does because success sounds of interest to most people in what you do. Um, jump online to thehiddenwhy.com episode 726, I believe it is, and um, yeah, I'll put the link in to get this book as well. 
Um, Albert, I'm, I'm conscious of your time. I know you have another appointment to get to. Have you got a few moments to answer a couple of these quick round questions? Sure, absolutely. Cool, cool. So the first one is, do you have any routines or rituals that you believe contribute to your success? <laughs> I, I'm an early riser, and but I think the most important uh, the, uh, kind of component of my success, whatever I got, is that I actually break out time from my schedule for working. So, for example, I come to the lab only Monday, Wednesday, Fridays afternoon, and the rest of the time I force myself to work alone on papers, on writing, and on ideas uh, away from the crowd and be able to focus. Okay, so you sort of yeah schedule your time well. Oh, absolutely. I tried it very hard. Because what happens, particularly people in my case, uh, uh, you know, kind of in their 50s that, that we have had somewhat successful career, there's lots of pressure by the community to do lots of different things that has nothing to do with our core competency. So I, I did everything possible so far in my life to avoid all those traps <laughs> and stay focused on what really kind of I'm good at, which is typically doing science. That's uh, good advice. What advice, now that you know what you know about success, would you give your 20-year-old self? Oh, I, I actually, one chapter is really about my son's path of choosing college and to what degree actually the college makes you or you are actually making the college. Uh, hmm. and, the, and, so, so, and so I have to deal with those questions both in my children's career as well as with my students. And one thing I actually would do completely differently now that I did before is to really pay attention to, to, to measures beyond performance. I wasn't an individual who totally bought in the fact that only performance matters when it comes to long-term success. And the more I analyze these things, the more I realize that it's not that performance doesn't matter. And the formula is not a book to tell you how you become successful without performance. But the real problem is that there are lots of individuals with, with very good performance that are indistinguishable from me and you. And the question is, how do you achieve success given that situation? So what I, would, what I do recommend, actually, uh, my son and my students is to pay attention to the non-performance aspects of their profession. And it depends very much. Uh, uh, you know, if you're an artist, you have to pay attention to the institutions that really matter in your space, right? If you are a scientist, you need to pay attention to who are the right mentors for you to actually succeed. And not only because the right mentors can give you the right knowledge, but they can develop you the taste and the access to the community in the way that when you have that great idea, you can build on and you can take it further. So, mm-hmm. so what, I, what I'm telling my, uh, my students and my children is to say, yes, you must have performance and there's no way around. You will not succeed if you don't get that maximum performance in whatever you do. But once you got to that point, pay equal attention to the other aspects of your profession, not only the performance, because that will accelerate your success. Okay, that's good advice. What meal would you request if it was your last meal? <laughs> That's a very interesting question, right? Because huh. in my lab, we, 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 uh, we analyze uh, food and eating patterns and their health implications. And that, since we do that in the last few years, that has fundamentally changed my eating patterns. Right. <laughs> that being said, the last meal is a very different story. <laughs> right, because there are no health benefits to the last meal. So I guess I would go for comfort food for my mom's or my wife's cooking. Okay. 
What um what what is your meal pattern now look like? Uh, since we started working on uh, uh, kind of food and eating, and, and uh, I actually changed very drastically, slowly, my eating patterns from from a very meat-based diet to a rather vegetarian diet, mm-hmm. which means that I actually have mainly salads. That doesn't make me a vegetarian, because if you invite me for dinner and you make a steak for me, I will eat it, because I think that that uh, hospitality trumps beliefs in this. Yeah. And by the way, meat is not necessarily bad for you. It's just too much meat is bad for you. Mm-hmm. But uh, but when it comes to my default mode, I actually eat, uh, eat vegetarian meals. For example, all I had today was a salad, and it's evening here. Okay, so you just eat the one meal a day, or is it well, I mean have probably another uh, uh, meal tonight, uh, but mostly kind of uh, plant-based as much as possible, unless I go out to dinner with someone, and then I would choose the best thing on the, on the menu. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I'm sort of uh, aligned with that as well, so yeah, it's a good one. What book would you pass down if you were to pass down one book to your children? Ooh, that's a very difficult one, <laughs> because that always changes uh, to be honest, right now, I would be unshamefully passing them the formula. Hmm. Nice. Um, I'm going to stick that in the show notes as well. So check it out, guys, again at thehiddenwhy.com. You've got a couple of other good books out there as well, Albert, so I'm going to stick those in the show notes as well. Do you have a message or quote that you would tweet or text to the entire world population? I would still say that, yes, it would be performance is about you, but your success is about us. And do you believe we all have a hidden why or a purpose? No. You have to find your purpose. It's it's not there when you're born. You have to develop it. Yeah. And what do you... What do you feel is the underlying motivation to everything that you do in your life? That changes a lot, right? Uh, and it changes uh, with my age, right? Uh, when, I, when I grew up in Transylvania, uh, my goal was just, could I actually become a scientist, right? That, that's what motivated me. Could I do what these, all these great scientists I was reading about do, did? And I... That was a huge dream in a place that was hermetically closed, the communist Romania where Transylvania is located, right? Hmm. Once I became a scientist and that path opened up, then the goals have slowly changed and the motivation of why do I get out in the morning from the bed has changed. Now in my 50s, uh, the motivation is equal the desire to do good science, but as well as to kind of help my students and my lab to do good science. So, yeah. so in, in a way or the other, that, you know, this shifts it. And that's the beauty of it, right? That we're now, I'm much more willing and able to contribute to the community. In my youth, I was somewhat selfish in that respect. Okay. Well answered. Uh, along with most of the questions and mate, been a, a very value-packed interview. I appreciate your time today. I know you've got an appointment to get to. So, um, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, it's my pleasure and thanks for having me. I'll stick the links into your website as well so people can reach out to you if they have any further questions. All your books will be there as well, guys. Um, make sure you do reach out, check out his work. And until next time, peace, passion and purpose. See you later. 
thanks guys for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Martin until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon